The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode of Negotiate Anything. Thanks for spending time with us today. It's listeners like you in 181 different countries that have made Negotiate Anything the most popular negotiation and conflict resolution podcast in the world. I'm your host, Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer, mediator, professor, and the director of the American Negotiation Institute. Before we get started, I have two quick questions for you. Is negotiation a critical part of what you do? Do you need to resolve conflict and persuade at work? If you answered yes to both of those questions, visit our website to learn more about our negotiation workshops. We've traveled the country working with professionals just like you, and we'd love to have the opportunity to work with you too. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Hey everyone, and welcome to part three of the virtual town hall on the topic of how to have difficult conversations about race. In this one, you guessed it, it's more Q&A from the marathon session that we had. Hope you enjoy it. How do we address black on black violence being used to change the narrative? I've seen that in so many conversations being used as a way to justify or being used as an excuse for not caring about the movement. And so the question that I would ask the person is, are you saying then um, black on black violence um, negates the problems that we're seeing? Right. I think that's the the question. It's a way to d- distract us from the issue. No, 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 no. We're not talking about black on black violence. Right. Just because there, just because that's an an issue perceived as an issue, um, it's okay. The, what happened in the past few months is okay. Is that what you're saying? Then of course they're going to have to say no. Okay, so let's focus on that issue. Let's ha- we can have a conversation about that that on another day if you want to. But right now we're talking about this specific issue, and I think the bigger issue here is that these are people who are meant to protect and serve. Right, that's the biggest issue that we're dealing with, you're meant to protect and serve and you're using your authority in a way that's inappropriate. So I think that's something that we have to consider here, just avoiding those, those distractions. Stay focused on the issue. That's why it's so important before you have the conversations to understand your goal. If, you're, if you don't have a clear goal, then those red herrings that they introduce during the conversation are gonna lead you astray. They're gonna pull you off the, the, the path that you need in order to be successful in your persuasive endeavor in this conversation. So I would say stay focused and then deal with that at another time. I'm white and I'm often around immigrants who are also people of color, but using unfortunate language. As a white person, I'm conflicted about correcting them or raising their awareness to racial issues. Should I only step in when it's coming from other white people like me? Is there a good way to go there? Wow, I feel heavily unqualified (laughs) to answer that question, but I'll try my best. Um, I think that's a tough one. Here's, let me start here. So I remember when I was younger, my my father said to me uh, sometimes, and he was talking about marriage, and he said, sometimes you have to ask yourself, is this the hill that you want to die on? And um, I remember saying, like, Dad, I don't want to die on any hills here. I don't know. (laughs) What are you getting at? But now as an adult who's married, I recognize, okay, I see what he's saying. You have to pick your battles. And um, in this situation, I think 
there is, yeah, you could say it's problematic for people to use that type of language. Um, but I think it's more, you have more leverage, not leverage. I think you'll have more of a positive impact if you focus it on people who are white like you and say, hey, listen, we, if we use that word, it has a completely different meaning. And so what I would suggest for you is if you're gonna police anybody, police your own people in that because it's gonna be really hard for you to be persuasive and have like the standing to have that conversation. Oh yeah, this is a great way to say it. So when I say the word standing, I'm thinking about it from a lawyer, as a, from a lawyer perspective. For instance, um, what happened to George Floyd is terrible. Very, very terrible. And even though I am I'm distraught about this situation, I cannot sue the police department. I don't have standing. I wasn't personally affected by that. And so because of that, I can't sue on his behalf or on behalf of his family, right? Could you imagine everybody suing everybody for whatever reason, even though they're not involved? That'd be chaos. And so I think in this situation, it's going to be problematic for you if you raise that conversation because you don't have standing to raise that conversation. But if you are a fellow white, you recognize a fellow white person is having the, the is having a negative impact by using those words. Now you have standing because you are on the same level as them in that situation. So keep that in mind. Um, that's a tough situation, but I appreciate the question. How best can white people self-reflect and reckon with our shame in uh, without burdening black friends who have their own pain to manage? Yeah, it's a great question. First of all, kudos on self-awareness there. Um, something that I would suggest there is um, for you personally, I would say it has to be an introspective process and, and recognize that Yes, sometimes like the worst things that have happened, they didn't come from you personally. You didn't do anything personally wrong. But then there are also things where we, where you have to recognize that you've accepted privilege just by existing, right? And it's nothing bad about you. Just you have to recognize that. Now you have to say to yourself, well, now what am I going to do about it? How can I make the society better? So the things that haven't happened in the past, they've happened. Now you have an opportunity to improve the situation. So for you, I would focus on the future right? Okay, that happened. This is the society we lived in. I have a responsibility now to move things forward, to move the dialogue forward. Um, and I think you're, you're smart recognizing that um, the, the guilt or frustration or uh, and discomfort you have with, the, with this situation will be superseded by the pain, discomfort, and, discom and um, uh, frustrations that Black people have about the situation. Similar to the point that I brought up before, it's all because of standing right? It's because of that concept of standing. So I think it's very self-aware that you recognize that. And um, I think that's something that you should wrestle with internally, or maybe with other people who are similarly situated. And then um, you just focus on what you can do to have a positive impact on moving the conversation forward. How do we stay engaged with someone who is aggressive and trying to shame us? Um, let's use this both ways. So let's say that we are uh, somebody who is inactive. We're inactive and somebody is trying to get us to be active and they're doing it by shaming us, okay? Um, what I would do in that situation, if it's happening in person, I would try to call the person aside and say, listen, I can tell you're frustrated about this situation, acknowledging emotions, um, but instead you, you don't need to sit back 
and allow people to to abuse you in these situations. So instead of getting curious with compassion right here, I acknowledge the emotion and then set a boundary. Listen, I understand you're frustrated about the situation, but the, what you're saying is having a severe negative impact on me. If you want to have a conversation, we can have a conversation, but shaming me is a completely different thing. So you have to be strong about setting those boundaries, but then you can use the framework to invite them into the conversation and, and talk about it, but you don't need to stand by and, and allow somebody to, to run you over. And then the other side too, if somebody is shaming you for the, the things that you're doing, trying to um, move the country in the right direction, trying to advance society, making people aware in that way, um, something you have to do is you have to pick your battles again. You have to recognize, is this somebody that I want to engage with? Does their behavior signal to me that they're, they're somebody that I should avoid talking to because it would be of more value to talk to somebody else in the time it could take for me to persuade that one person, I could persuade three other people. Maybe I, it makes more sense for me to just limit my contact with that person. If you're in a situation where you have to address that, then you have to tackle it. And I think the framework gives you a good opportunity. But again, you, you always set the boundaries. You never put yourself in a position where somebody can take advantage of you or treat you improperly. Um, you don't need to have a, a, like a level um, conversation about, hey, let's negotiate whether or not you can abuse me. That's never on the table. Right. So I think that's really something important. If you're being shamed, you have to set that boundary. Um, that's the way that you approach that conversation. How would you respond to people who want to throw misguiding, misguided facts at you about the opposition? How do you deal with the deeply entrenched emotional opposition who throws alternative facts and flawed logic and specious arguments into the discussion? Specious. I feel like I'm in law school again. I appreciate that. Okay. So in that situation, it's, this is a tough situation, right? Because again, kind of circling back to what I said before, this is a situation where somebody is not willing to engage in a level conversation about the issues, but they're trying instead to distract you by pulling you away from actually having a conversation about those key issues. So again, this is one of the situations where when you're analyzing it, you have to ask yourself, is this worth my time? Is this worth my energy? Is this worth my stress and discomfort that I know I'm going to feel during the conversation? That's step one. Then if you do decide to engage in the conversation, um, I think what we would need to do first is, is talk about these, the facts, because what they're signifying is that the, their approach is going to be rooted in, is going to be like the foundation for their, their position is based on things that are not true. So before we even talk about like those specific facts, where it's like, I say this, you say that, okay, we're just going to fight on this issue. Let's again, broaden the scope. Okay. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to do's, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. 
It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. I would say this, just in, in, in these, just forget everything else that you've heard, just on a th- hypothetical sense. And if you invite somebody to engage in a hypothetical with you, they're more likely to engage in the hypothetical than they are in actual specific facts. And so you can start to, to have the conversation more on a theoretical level. Hypothetically, if this was a situation where somebody, I don't know how you could think any other way, but if, you, if, if this was a situation where, um, where somebody was treated unfairly by the, by the police, do you think that is okay? Do you think the police should protect and serve, right? I mean, we're getting to very fundamental aspects of humanity here. So if you strip away the facts, if they're using facts that are problematic to support their argument, and they're really clinging strongly to those facts, then let's say, all right, forget the facts, let's talk about a hypothetical. I think that's a good way to circumvent the, those whataboutisms or situations where they're bringing in facts that are not true or not verified. Um, because if we, if we start by uh, trying to wrestle with those, you're going to run into problems because they're, they're going to hold strong to their position. So I think hypotheticals are a strong way to avoid those uh, situations if they're trying to use that to kind of hide behind the truth of the situation. How do you respond and not over-respond to microaggressions? And how do you self-monitor to, a, to prevent committing microaggressions? Okay, so this is, I'm going to give a disclaimer here. I think when, when it comes to the term microaggressions, I, I see things a little bit more differently uh, than, than other people do. Um, and I'll tell you why. And so in, in my book, I have a section that's called the benefit of the benefit of the doubt. And for me, I know that I perform better in these conversations if I don't think that the person is trying to tear me down. Right. And with the thing with microaggressions, a lot of these things are unintentional. Right. It's not something that they did intentionally. Oftentimes it's a well-meaning thing. So I'm going to assume the best of intentions. That's the first thing Um, that helps me to not over respond to those situations. I could use that as an opportunity to uh, to call somebody in and have a conversation and educate them, because oftentimes the microaggressions come from the subconscious and they manifest themselves in words and they don't recognize it. So I remember one time. I had a conversation, this is a bit closer to a macro aggression, uh, with a friend and mentor. Um, and so he said uh, there was a black athlete who was going to make an, uh, like a speech or uh, like a, give a statement, a public statement. And he said, oh, I hope he doesn't go up there and sound like, hey, yo, yo, blah, 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 and using proper grammar and stuff like that. And I said, hmm, so what makes you think that he would do that? And he got quiet and he said, yeah, that wasn't good. I was, that was one of those times, right? And um, before that, he's, we had a conversation, a very frank conversation where he said, listen, uh, in the past, I've been accused of being a racist and I'm afraid that I might be and I just don't recognize it. And so as I mentor you, as you matriculate and develop as a lawyer, I, want, I will teach you how to be a good lawyer and I want you to teach me how to be a good person if you see me going off the beaten path. And so we had a really good relationship we, I felt open calling him out. And so he said, yep, that wasn't good. Thank you. Right. And so a lot of times what we have to do is bring awareness to the, to the things that other people do or say that might be problematic because it's not at the conscious level. Right. And so that's, that's how I respond to those, 
situations. And again, it's um, compassionate curiosity. I'm not going to, I'm going to skip the acknowledging emotions part because that doesn't really come into play in this situation. I just asked a question, got them to think about it. And now they think about it a little bit differently because I prompted them to, to go in this direction. But if I said, hey, that's racist, here's the thing. It's like a, an American tradition. If somebody calls you racist, you have to, you have to, no matter what the situation, you have to say, no, I'm not racist. Unless you are literally part of the clan, you have to reject that. Even if what you did was problematic, racially problematic, racially insensitive, you have to reject it. So if you go with that direct approach, it's going to be problematic. But if you say, hey, what makes you think that? A lot of times people are, they come to these conclusions without thinking it through. That's just how they feel. Oh, oh, I see. You exposed something in me that's not okay. Thank you for that. Okay. So that's the way that I deal with microaggressions. I assume that they're not intentional. That helps me to stay engaged in the conversation. Um, we're having conversations we're having conversations, but seem to get stuck in conversation mode. How do you suggest we move to action and, and next steps? So again, I'm going to go back to the, to the framework. We have great conversations, but we have to get people to commit. And so that's the term I would continue to bring up if I were you. What is our commitment? As an organization, what do we commit to do differently? Okay, how are we going to measure that? Because sometimes we have these really nebulous commitments that it's unclear at the end of the, let's say at the end of the year. Did we meet that commitment? Our commitment as a company is to be more inclusive. What does that mean? Okay, how do we measure it? We measure what matters, okay? And if we don't measure it, then we're saying it doesn't matter. And if we don't measure it, there's no way to hold our, ourselves accountable to see whether we succeeded or failed. And so again, we have to get commitment that is specific and measurable so we can see whether or not we performed. What are some specific words or phrases that can evoke, evoke shame? I want to avoid those. Um, I think this, this question is tough because it's going to be different for different people. I know for me, freedom, autonomy, choice, those are very, very important to, for me, right? And so again, this is going to be different for different people, but I just want to give you an idea of how it is, how it would be for me, probably different for other people. If I come to a situation and somebody's telling me what I should do or what I need to do, there's a little, a little Kwame rebel in me that says, well, first of all, now I need, to, I need to resist whatever it is you just said because you're not my mother, <laughs> you're not my father. You do not tell me what I do, what I need to do, or what I should or should not do, right? And so oftentimes when, uh, when somebody approaches me like that, um, they, it, it, it feels to me like you are belittling me, like you are lording over me. And so approaching it in that way for me is problematic. And I think, again, the tough part about your question is that it differs for different people. So I think, um, again, getting curious and asking why they are where they currently are is going to be a really important way for you to figure out whether or not um, what you're, you're risking shame. Also, you have to consider how close the relationship is. You can be a lot more frank to somebody who's closer to you who you know very well. And so you can be a little bit harsher. I don't want to say harsher. You can be a little bit more frank and candid with the way that you feel about those situations and you don't need to soften it as much because if you have an underlying relationship, they're going to give you a little bit of grace more so than somebody who's a stranger. So I think it really depends on the person and the relationship. I think those are the, the two um, things that you need to consider when you're um, evaluating whether or not what you say can evoke shame. Um, also, quick thing. When it comes to evoking shame, you have to read the room. You really have to read the room. And so when I, what I mean by that is when you say something, if you, you see the response. What response did I get? 
was there silence? Did I see something change in their body language? Okay, if I'm seeing a negative response, acknowledge that. That's an emotional response. Hey, it seems like uh, you didn't like what I said. Can you tell me about that? Then you can have a conversation about it. So you can fix the situation if you said something wrong. I remember I was talking to one of my friends recently, and she, uh, he said that he was talking to somebody and he used the wrong term to describe them. And so they said, uh, like, they're their ethnic group. And so he saw immediately the person's face changed. They, their, their, their face changed, their body language changed. And she, he said, I'm sorry. It seems as though I said something to offend you. Did I, did I offend you with that? And they said, oh, well, no, you know, actually, we consider ourselves blank. My apologies, right? You have to be aware. That's acknowledging the emotion. That was an emotional response. You saw it, acknowledge it so you can deal with that situation. And so I think even if you do accidentally shame somebody or say something offensive, if you're really attuned to the emotional response that's in front of you, then you, it's going to lessen the likelihood of long-term damage. So even if you did make a mistake, you can pull it back and correct it and let them know, hey, sorry, I, I, I really didn't mean to. So I apologize for that. Okay. Do we get to the point of not having the identity of our relationship being, I'm black, I'm white, you're white, I'm black, or do we never get past that? Like, you're blonde, I have dark hair. It feels like if you have difficult conversations with someone, it'll be difficult to move past that to we are human beings con conversing. When does the sensitivity slash awkwardness dissipate when they're, when, sorry, where we are right now, like dissipate past where we are right now. Sorry if this seems simplistic, but will we ever be able to move from we are different to we are all just human beings? For me, that would be my goal. I think that's an, that's an, um, that's an admirable goal. I think that's an admirable goal. Uh, here's the way I, I see it. So let me answer psychologically. I remember there was a study that showed that people are able to identify race faster than they are able to identify uh, gender. So our identity, like we were able to identify those things, right? And I think the fact that our brains are designed the way they are, it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be a challenge because our brains are designed to categorize things, to differentiate things, because that helps our brain to operate more efficiently. The brain is an energy hog. It's a very small, it takes a very small percentage of our body mass, but I think it takes about like 30% of our, our glucose to function, something like that. Uh, don't quote me <laughs> on that. Somebody can fact check me in the quote, in the, in the comments if they want to. Um, but the point is the brain uses a lot of energy. So it's always looking for mental shortcuts. And so these are heuristics, different things like that, that make it easier for us to categorize things. So we don't need to reanalyze everything every single time. So I think it's an, an admirable ideal, but we'll, we'll never stop recognizing that. We'll always see it. And I think what's important is to recognize that it doesn't mean that we're not, even if we recognize it and we look at uh, the differences between us as something to appreciate and admire versus something that pulls us apart, I think that mentality around the difference is what's going to pull us together. That's the thing, right? We all have something unique and, and valuable and beautiful to offer to the conversations and to the community. So let's embrace the differences instead of using it to pull us apart. So I think if you focus it on that in that way and look at things that you can appreciate about a person, appreciate about their culture, their race, their religion, their sexual identity, whatever it happens to be, it's going to be easier for us to pull apart, come together because the brain is naturally designed to recognize differences and categorize people along those lines. Okay, great question. Let's move on. Um, 
I can relate 100% with a few points you've made. One, sitting back, quiet, frustrated, feeling exhausted and, and excluded con constantly at work. I want to raise the way I'm feeling with my employer without sounding like a victim or it's because of my color. Where do I start? Um, that's tough. That's really tough. So first of all, you have to have a conversation with yourself. You have to have an introspective like dialogue, self-dialogue. What's the problem that you're facing? What's, what are the biggest issues that you're facing um, within the workplace? I would try to narrow your focus on those, those few things. Let's say it's really tough because out of the 50 people, there are two people of color here only two that is not representative of the of the uh, racial distribution of the country and that's problematic for me and so every time i feel i come into the work workplace i i feel like the other just because i am the other and so maybe what the big issue for you is is creating a pipeline into the workplace for more people of color and having more people of color matriculate to the top right those those might be your issues and so once you get really, really clear on what would be a win for you in this situation, that's when you start crafting your dialogue. You're, you start creating your strategy for the conversation. And then you start to pull the, the, your employer, the leader within your company to your side through persistent, persuasive pressure using the compassionate curiosity framework. But again, you have to manage your, your, uh, your, your mental energy, your mental health. In sports, they call it load management. For instance, in the NBA, um, they have more games than usual. Um, well, not this season, but typically they have a lot of games. And so what they've recognized is that a lot of times the star players, they're taking games off, not really because they have a specific injury, but because they want to manage their load. I can't do this much or else I risk injury in the future. And so for you, I would suggest the same thing. You have to recognize when you need to pull back for your own mental health, but the clearer you get on what your goals are as it relates to your conversations with your employer, the more successful you're going to be when you do have those conversations. And so where does it start? It starts with introspection. It starts with you looking inside of yourself to figure out what it is that you need and then what you can do to make those things tangible in the, in the form of tangible requests. And then you create your strategy for how to have that conversation. And as you might've guessed, the best way to create that strategy is by downloading the free guide, AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash justice, how to have difficult conversations about race. So I think that'll be a good place to start too. What is the importance of one's ability or inability to develop friendships across racial or ethnic lines in the larger societal and economic uh, problems tied to race? Whee! Short question, but very deep. Um, when it comes to your ability or inability to develop friendships across uh, racial lines, I think that's a, a signal of something that might be problematic. If you struggle to create those relationships with people who are different from you, you have to ask yourself why. Again, using the compassionate curiosity framework internally to figure it out. How do I feel when I interact with somebody who's a person of color, who's different from me? Okay, actually, pause for a second. I'm not just going to say person of color because I've had friends who are, um, who are minorities who say, I struggle to make friends who are white, make friends with who, people who are white. And I think that's problematic too. And so when it comes to that, we have to figure out what it is because bias goes both ways. There, a, a lot of times when we have these conversations, we don't think about biases that people of color have. And so I, I know sometimes there's an assumption that, hey, if, especially if you came from a community where you, most of the people around you were people of color, the white person becomes the other. 
And so it's easy for you to then say, yeah, I think most white people have a lot of prejudices that are problematic. So I'm not even going to really try to, 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 to befriend those people. I always keep my distance. I've heard that from my friends many times. And I think that's problematic too. So we have to figure out what biases we have. All of us need to look inside and see what biases we have and see the impact of those biases too. Um, something that I want to bring up is the mere exposure effect. And so the mere exposure effect says that um, just simply being exposed to a stimulus repeatedly, as long as it's not like significantly negative, is going to increase the amount that you feel positively toward that stimulus. So think about a song that you've heard and um, you've heard the song one time and you're like, yeah, the song is okay. And then they blast it on the radio like 10 more times. And then by the 11th time, you're like, man, this is my jam. I love this song, right? The mere exposure effect works for people too. It's not just going to focus on that individual, but it's going to, by association, it's going to extrapolate to other people who look like them too. And so integration in that way is really important when it comes to using integration as a de-biasing tool. The more we're able to work collaboratively with each other, the less negative, negatively we're going to look at each other. But we need repeated positive exposures. And so, yeah, I think it is very important for us to, to find ways to, to integrate and, and create friendships across racial lines. Um, yeah. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know that in addition to our usual negotiation and conflict resolution focused trainings that we do for corporations, we also have added content focused on how to have difficult conversations about race. And so what we're doing is we're blending my background in civil rights along with my background in negotiation and conflict resolution to create a one of a kind training that is customized for your organization that helps you get through these difficult conversations. If you're interested, make sure to check out the link in the description to learn more. And now, back to the episode. Okay, can you share any advice for navigating the challenge of advocating for meaningful change within a nonprofit organization whose BOD, B-O-D, board of directors, <laughs> whose board of directors have opinions and vested interests that are at times in direct opposition to the tenets of racial justice and the viewpoints and efforts the, the, of the direct service staff. Okay, great. So that's tough, first of all. Let's, let's do that. And so one of the most powerful persuasive tools that we have at our disposal is commitment, the idea of commitment. And so I'm going to look at this as a, like a persuasive tool, not just like in terms of closing the deal, but in terms of how we can use it persuasively. So if you look at the book by Robert Cialdini, Influence, he talks about the principle of consistency um, and commitment. And so when it comes to that, we want to look at things that people have said in the past and see how we can hold them to that previous commitment. When if you're dealing with a board of directors, what I would do is I would focus on the, the, the goals of the organization. What does the organization want to accomplish? What is our mission statement? What are our value statements? And I'll start there. Hey, listen, as a member of the board, um, as, as a board, we vowed to do X, Y, Z. So right now what I'm seeing us doing is actually having this impact. What can we do to bridge that gap? Now we're getting curious. We want to help them to recognize that there is a gap between what they're saying and what they are actually doing. And first, it has, to be, it has to deal with awareness. We need to bring that awareness to their conscious attention, right? We have to rec help them to recognize that there is a gap. Once they identify that there's a problem, now we can talk about solutions. But a lot of times in these types of situations within the workplace, the people are blind to the problems. They're not going to know that they need to look for solutions if they're not even aware of the problem. So I think 
recognizing and, and use, utilizing consistency and a, the discrepancy between where they are and where they should be is going to be the first step. And so that's going to be the first step in your persuasive endeavors. What can I do? How can I craft this conversation to bring them to a higher level of awareness of the gap between what they say they are going to do and what they're actually doing? So I think that's the first step. My question, I am mixed race, but can easily identify as white. How do I engage with both of my identities when interacting with others on racial issues, especially those who have called me out? Example, race isn't your issue. Um, first of all, question that I would ask, I would say, how did... <laughs> The audacity. Okay, so what I would say in that situation is, how can you tell me what my issue is? Right? I, the, the, this is my life. That's the question that I would ask persuasively. How can you tell me what my issue is, right? Um, and then also, I would say that in your situation, it would be, I think it would be helpful a lot of times to acknowledge the, the reality that you just stated there right? I have my perspectives. And yes, I acknowledge that even though I'm mixed, I can pass for white. Because a lot of times people are going to use that again as a distraction to pull away from the really strong points that you want to make to say, yeah, you're right. This is my appearance. This is who I am. And this is how I feel. If you focus on how you feel about the situation, um, they can't take that away from you, right? So I think that's the way to, to do it. Yeah, acknowledge that I, I am mixed and light skinned. But I still feel this way and it doesn't take away from the way that I feel about this situation. So yeah, I think the, the best way, again, like I said, honesty is the best policy. I think you need to be real with yourself. Don't shy away from who you are. Never shy away from who you are. Don't let people take that away from you. Be proud of that. And then just say, yeah, that's right. And this is how I feel. Just stay focused on that. It feels like many well-meaning white people feel more comfortable talking about the byproducts of racism, such as poverty, criminal justice system, health disparities, educational outcome disparities, et cetera, instead of having conversations about the root cause, which is racism. How do you help people open dialogue about the root cause? That's tough. First of all, you have to find a way to make people feel vulnerable, comfortable being vulnerable with you. And again, think back to the, recognize you, you see the value in having these open dialogues. You recognize that, right? And so we, in order for us to have those open dialogues, we have to have people who feel comfortable having these conversations. And the person isn't going to feel comfortable being vulnerable with you if you do anything or say something that triggers shame. Now we lost the opportunity to have those dialogues. And I, I agree with you. I think it's really important for us to have those conversations about the root cause, which is, which is racism. It's very easy to have proxy wars where instead of talking about uh, the, the key issue, which is racism, um, it's easier for us to talk about the outcomes, which uh, are, we can say, yeah, um, we need criminal justice reform, right? The thing is, talking about racism is really, really, really awkward. People usually don't like doing it, right? And so I think what needs to happen first is you have to create an environment where people feel a sense of psychological safety to have those conversations. And also, you have to consider where you are situated. And so people, ultimately, after the conversation, they're going to have different levels of responsibility when it comes to transitioning into the next steps. So somebody who works in a software development firm is going to have a different 
impact on um, structural racialization or um, a different impact when it comes to what they can do or say about the problem uh, when compared to somebody who is in Congress, right? We have a different level of commitment for those types of people. And um, those conversations are going to look different. But what I would say when it comes to having the conversation where people feel comfortable um, actually getting to the point where racism is a problem, I think the, the key thing is going to be creating that psychological safety and also making it clear that I'm not blaming you for all of society's problems. That's not uh, what I'm doing. What I would say is I'm recruiting you because I see you as a potential valuable ally. In order for you to be a good ally, there's some things that you need to learn. I'd like to have a conversation with you about that. And I think that's a good way to approach it. How do we approach conversations with people in our social circle who have racial, racist beliefs? Again, um, I like to start off by having the converse, or in my mind, giving them the benefit of the doubt. Okay, yeah, they, they believe, here's the thing, most people, will say to themselves, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And so they'll interpret the world and their actions through that realm of I'm a good person. And so I'd, ref again, acknowledging the emotions. I, I Listen, I see you as a good person. And that's why I want to have a conversation with you because um, I understand that you have good intentions. I just want to understand how you see the world. And I think opening the conversation up like that makes them more willing to engage in a way that doesn't make them reflexively fight back what you're saying. Because in order for somebody to, to, to accept the reality as we're saying it is, if we are, are trying to get somebody to accept the, the fact that, hey, there are structures within this society that are more beneficial to others, that are less beneficial to others, right? That, are, that create injustices for some and then create privileges for others. In order for somebody to accept that, it makes the, it, they have to make a, a huge cognitive shift that doesn't only impact the way that they see the world and the way that they see society, but also the way that they see themselves. Because you're saying that to a certain extent, my position right, right now has been acquired through somewhat ill-gotten gain. Like that's the way that they're going to approach it. It's a, it's a threat to who they are as, an, as a person. And that's why people are so reflectively against accepting that reality. And so it's going to take time and it's going to take a lot of compassion. And um, if you have the time, I say invest the time and potentially recruit another ally, but it's not something that somebody's going to quickly automatically say, oh yeah, oh, that, that makes sense. Absolutely. I see it your way. Um, I, all, I have underlying biases. This society has helped me in a lot of ways. And all those things that I thought I accomplished, I had a little bit of help. That's a lot. That's a lot. It's going to take time. And I, again, that's why I had persistent positive pressure and through the use of the compassionate curiosity framework. But it's going to take time. But I think you have to create that atmosphere and avoid shame, like I mentioned earlier. Okay, I have individuals, I've called individuals out on racist comments or jokes based on racial stereotypes before and their response is that they, what they said was not racist because the stereotype is actually true. Whee! Oh my goodness. I'm not sure how to change minds when people genuinely believe these stereotypes are true. Do you have any advice on this? That's a tough one. Um, if somebody responds in that way, we have to, we have to ask ourselves what does that really mean, right? About where they are and where they could pot potentially go through the, the course of the conversation. Um, and I would so say, 
hypothetically, if you're in a situation where somebody is joking like that, um, they feel pretty comfortable with you and to a certain level consider you a friend. Um, I, I'm guessing here, I don't know who wrote this or the situation, but I'm assuming if you're privy to that type of humor, you're probably considered a friend. Then what I would say is this, if, if the goal, goal is changing behavior, it's like what impact, considering the fact that I'm talking about this, what impact do you think it has on me? The, what you said had on me, right? And start getting them to think more empathetically because now we're talking, the way that it was framed before was framed in right versus wrong. And so nobody wants to admit that they're wrong. And so what I would say is, okay, let's talk about the negative impact of what you said. Cause I don't think you see it. I don't think you see it. So what do you think it is? Recognize, help them to recognize the impact because a lot of times people don't see it. Um, I think that's a, that's a big part of it. And so I think that will be a good place for you to start. Um, I've taken the lead in my organization to create spaces where these discussions can happen. I know it's been beneficial to those who participate, but all of our managers and executive leadership are white. I know these conversations make someone comfortable. Um, and aside, that is okay. They, they're meant to make people uncomfortable. Um, I sometimes think they see me as that guy and may project that discomfort onto me. This may have unintended consequences. Any advice around occupying this space? This is tough. This is tough. And so what I would say is this, and I think I don't, I don't have a good context. I don't know what, which organization you work for. Um, I don't, and I, I think this is an important variable. I don't know your race. Um, for the person who's asking that. Because again, I think it's it, one of the particular struggles that people of color have within their organizations is that, like you said, you don't want to be that guy. It's like, oh, Kwame, uh, he's, the one, he's the one black guy in the room. I guarantee you I know what he's going to talk about because it kind of invalidates the arguments that you're going to bring forward. Um, and that's a really difficult uh, place to be in. And so what I would suggest doing, one thing strategically that might be beneficial to you is engage in what I call, not what I call, like I made it up, uh, <laughs> engage in coalition building. And so in coalition building, what you're doing is you're recruiting allies, um, in your case, within your organization, who see the, the inequity that you see. So it's not just you. It's not just that guy anymore. It's those people. Okay. So it's hard to really belittle what multiple people are saying, because it's not just you. And so you have to figure out and kind of read the room to see who are potential allies with you in this. And so, hey, I've noticed that our, our leadership is completely white. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I noticed that too. That's a bit problematic. Yeah, what do you think we can do about it? Okay, great. One ally, have more conversations. And now when you, have, when you come to the table with these, to have this difficult conversation, you're saying, hey, it's not just me. It's not just that guy. Other people see it too. And then I think another thing that will be important too is uh, identifying consistency with the mission. That's a big thing. And sometimes people are like, I mean, I really don't care. I really don't care. Okay, well, let's establish consistency with your mission of making money. Because now what we're recognizing is that is the lack of diversity is having an impact on the bottom line. Uh, there was a study that was done by um, Boston Consulting Group um, where they recognized that companies that have more diverse staff are able to uh, be more innovative. Uh, don't quote me uh, on, the, on the numbers or anything. I don't remember the numbers. If you just Google Boston Consulting Group study on diversity, 
um, you'll see that there are there are benefits to having more diversity at the top. Because the thing is, yeah, okay, you might have good ideas. Yeah, I have good ideas. But I recognize my ideas are better when I talk to other people who think differently, who can challenge me. And so if everybody is thinking in the same way and they see the world the same way, they're going to miss things. And so it's not just that there's a there's a, a an argument to be made from the the side of equity, but there's also within a company the the argument to be made um, from the side of revenue as well. And sometimes you have to speak the language of the person. That's why, again, at the beginning I said, what do they want? Well, actually, I say that in the guide. That's why you should download the guide, AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com/slash justice to download that free guide and and learn how to structure these conversations persuasively but one of the elements that you need to consider is who the other person is and what they hope to accomplish because some people they're just about the money okay great i'm not it's going to be tough for me to change your worldview if that is your worldview but let me speak to you in languages that you can respect and appreciate well there could be a significant impact on our bottom line if we don't get with the times and we don't recognize that that could hurt us and so then whatever in you need to get to, to start moving the conversation forward, I suggest that you take that opportunity to, to, to push the conversation forward and start to diversify uh, the, the people at the top. And then as you do that, most likely you're going to start to find more allies and then you get the ball ro rolling, but it starts somewhere. And what you're seeing here through this presentation is that it starts with a conversation. Um, I'm at the end of the questions, which could not possibly be the case. Is that true? Is that what? Hey, peeps, don't let me down here. I, I, I thought I was going till three. My voice is fading, but uh, but I'm still here. You can't let me outlast you. Don't let me outlast your curiosity. If any other questions come through, let me know. Also, Catherine, can you check LinkedIn to see if questions are coming through on LinkedIn? I'd... Okay. Que Facebook group, question mark, exclamation point. Man, you're going to have to talk to somebody who likes Facebook <laughs> about that. I might be interested in LinkedIn group about that. Um, I'll, talk to my, my, uh, I'll talk to my team about what's realistic. But I think that what we've learned here today is that um, community is important. Uh, there are a lot of people out here who, who want answers on this. And um, it's encouraging to see just how many people were interested and willing to stay till the end. We have 200 people or 150 now that have stayed to the end. I don't know how many people are watching on LinkedIn, but, um, but yeah, this is impressive. And so I'll think about ways that we can continue to con continue the conversation and offer you resources, but check out the podcast, uh, check out Catherine's podcast, check out um, all of our free resources. We have a ton of... <laughs> <laughs> My family and friends tell me I'm too generous with the business. But if, you, um, if you're in a situation where in your company you want um, customized training on this, let me know. If you're interested in coaching on that, let me know. Something that I have been thinking about, put it in the chat if you'd be interested in this, is group coaching for leaders within organizations who are, in, who, who are struggling with these conversations. Because what I'm envisioning is maybe you know, weekly or biweekly calls where leaders can come together and say, hey, this is what I'm dealing with. What strategies do you have? Okay, great. Then we, we help each other. And then the next week, it's somebody else. We focus on their needs, and then we address it that way. So put it in the chat. Tell me if you'd be interested in that, and we can send out some information. Um, oh, question. How do you maintain this positive attitude, and do you get overwhelmed by what's going on in America? Oh, yeah. You must have jumped on late. Uh, so... <laughs> 
so I've been out of the game for years because I did social justice work when I came out of uh, out of school. It was civil rights work dealing with health equity and dealing with like the worst part of racial injustice in America, seeing that every day it burnt me out. And so this is Kwame getting back in the game. Um, I was out from completely disengaged in every single fashion. Didn't even post about anything social justice related or uh, race related or anything for since 2016, since 2016. And then Whitney challenged me using the compassion and curiosity framework. She said, well, I, I understand Kwame that you don't want to talk about this. It is emotionally draining. It's psychologically draining for you. I, I, I understand that, but how can you consider yourself a leader as it relates to difficult conversations if you're not willing to engage in conversations? Isn't this what you tell people not to do? Don't you specifically have this in your book about not it, avoiding these conversations. I did not like the way that felt, but she was right. And so I, I had to shift my perspective and now I'm in on it. Um, and so if you, behind the scenes, there was a lot of inner turmoil. And I, I recognized that I wasn't answering the call and I was letting people down by not engaging. And um, I, I recognized that I have a unique voice in this um, being a person of color, somebody who worked in civil rights, uh, somebody who has a law degree, lawyer, so I did criminal justice work, uh, somebody who has a master of public policy, so I understand the way the system works, and then somebody who is a professor of negotiation and mediation advocacy and the director of the American Negotiation Institute. I have the, I have the understanding of the situation um, personally and professionally, and then I also have the negotiation skills too. And so, I mean, we're talking, I've been in this game again for five days, this is this is me shaking off some rust. So it's really tough for me to, uh, to to have these conversations. But I think when you filter your identity through the right lens, it it works. So Kwame, the the businessman, doesn't want to talk about this. Um, Kwame, the uh, the husband, the uh, the father, the person who just wants to chill, doesn't want to talk about this at all. I don't want to engage. But Kwame, the leader, the Kwame who recognizes that people look to me for advice and and guidance, has to engage. And so when I look at my, uh, my contribution through that lens, that's how I can engage. And so I encourage you to figure out which lens is, uh, provides you with the opportunity to, to tap into some energy. Because I have been essentially talking nonstop for the last hour and two hours and 11 minutes. That's not normal, <laughs> you know? But the thing is, I'm not doing it for me because I like this. I'm doing it because clearly the market has shown that, uh, that people need this. So I want to be there for you guys. Um, please talk directly to police officers. What do they need to hear right now? Um, and, and I know there are a few, a few of my police officer friends who are, I'm, I'm not sure if they're still in the chat or still in there, but they, they are here. And I think one thing they need to hear is this, right? We need you as allies in, in, this, in this fight. We need you as allies. And I think also it's important for us to recognize too that the vast majority of police officers are out there trying their best. But again, going back to that slide about inaction being complicit, um, if you're not doing something internally, then you're not helping, you're hurting the cause, right? So I would encourage you to take what you've learned in this, if you are in the police department or a politician especially, but actually no, I, I, it's police officers especially, right? Because from the outside, Looking in, I mean, we can shout and say things or everything, but we're we're not part of the, we're not privy to those conversations. The the most change will occur from the inside out. So I think yeah, we need those uh, we need police officers as allies, and 
I think a lot of them want to be, but it's very difficult for them to be. And um, I have a lot of empathy for them too, because a lot of times it's, it, it, the force is like a brotherhood and you have to kind of wrestle with that identity. Um, you know, it, is it us versus them type of situation? If you have that, that kind of, if you frame it in that di dichotomy, it'll be really problematic for you to have those conversations. But I think if we have those allies internally, they can use these exact same mechanisms, the tools and everything that I talked about in this presentation to move the dialogue forward. So, so what I would say to them is we need you. We definitely need you. How important is it to share your supportive actions or one thing broadly, maybe, oh, wait, did I get up to the top? Um, okay, how can we do this without seemingly merely performative and centering on ourselves? I wanna show my support publicly, but I worry about that. Hey, kudos to you for recognizing that too. Um, I would say, say that, <laughs> say that. I think again, some of the, the, the most simple technique or strategy that I've provided you with today is the, is the license to be vulnerable, the license to be honest. You just say, listen, I don't want to seem as though I'm trying to get, you know, social media points. But the reason I'm doing this is because I think it's important for people who are similarly situated as to me to recognize, hey, I have something to offer too. If he did it, I can do it. If she did it, I can do it too. I think this is a really great entry point for some of that positive, persistent pressure that I described earlier. Um, and then again, like you, you can use that as almost like a, a technique to, to, for people to kind of show who show their support. And so you say, okay, these 15 people liked, liked it. Now what I can do is try to engage in a conversation with those 15 people, see what I can do to get them to commit to doing something differently. How do we engage with, look at that. I challenge you guys, you came through. You're not done. I know you have more questions. So how do we engage in conversations about race or racial injustice with people who deny how severe it is or claim that we're exaggerating? How do we educate them without turning them off? Again, compassionate curiosity framework. It seems like you're really frustrated about hearing about this all the time. Hey, that's where I was. I was shutting down. I didn't want to hear about it. Some people just don't want to hear about it. And that's why they brush it off. It's not that they're actually engaging in deep thought about the, about the issue. It's that I just do not want to have this conversation right now. I don't want to think about it right now. And also, I don't want to think that the country that I love so much has such deep problems still. So that's what we're kind of moving, like working against there, right? So again, compassionate curiosity. It sounds like you don't want to engage with this right now. I'd say that. It sounds like you don't want to, you don't want this to be true. I don't want this to be true. So what's leading you to, to, to believe this? Okay. And so what you want to do is you're allowing them by asking these questions, you're allowing them to show you where they're misunderstanding the situation. Um, you might even break it into two conversations. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to listen to you right now. I want to hear where you stand. Okay, great. So thank you for sharing that. Um, no, great. Have a better understanding, right? So you ask a lot of questions, learn it. So, hey, um, the next day I had a, I had some time to do some research and um, found some data. Would you be interested in, in continuing the conversation? Okay. So yesterday you said this, but I found that. Um, what do you think about this? Right. And so you're kind of chipping away on that slowly um, because, you know, if you have, you have the data there, there's data to support uh, the, the perspective that you have, I'm assuming. So if that's the case, let that speak for you. Um, in negotiation, we would call that legitimate objective criteria, legitimate objective criteria. So um, legitimate, it comes from a respected source. Recognize that what is a respected source for you might not be for them and vice versa. So if somebody's 
quoting MSNBC, other people won't find that persuasive. If somebody's quoting Fox, they, somebody else might not find that persuasive. persuasive. Same with Wall Street Journal and, and uh, New York Times. It depends on what you think is credible. And so you find a, a source that you think that they can respect and use that to kind of lead them to recognize, so they can recognize that their understanding is inaccurate. That's the way I would do it. I would break it up into conversations if you feel compelled to try to help them to understand what the world really is. How do you reconcile the challenges of the U.S. Constitution? Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, man, this is going to be a fun one. Hold on, let me take a drink before I get into this. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.